My name is Athena Kabenu. I'm a stand-up comedian, writer and podcaster and a parent, which you all know is lots and lots of fun, but does leave me wanting for adult conversations. So to make up for what I lack in adult conversation, every now and again, I invite a friend around to keep my company. Obviously, I haven't done that. Don't snitch. No one's come around. I'm on my home, in my yard by myself, actually with my baby, who I've got a new one. I had, a, I had a new one since the last podcast. Hello. Uh, so this one's on my lap. Uh, but I invited somebody who actually, I think it's fair to say, of my all my podcasts, this is the person I know the least. I don't know who you are, Pope. Yeah. Oh, well, you got to find out. <laughs> We're going to find out. And th- th- the reason why that's significant is the podcast started for me to hang out with my friends, but now it's kind of, I've run out of friends, basically. So <laughs> expand it slightly. Um, but also, um, because people can't come around, um, it seems to make sense to have people on the podcast who... Um, who um, who could be who anywhere might, in the world? Who might rob anywhere. you? <laughs> <laughs> Even though I wouldn't trust in my house, yeah, yeah. I, can, I can have them. I can have them on the podcast. Anyway, Pope Lonergan, welcome to Keeping Athena's Company. Thank you. How are you? Oh, uh, uh, thank you for inviting me. No, I'm uh, yeah, good. Um, as we were saying, um, congratulations on the, the new baby as well. Uh, oh, thank you. Yeah, thanks. He's uh, he's he's quite nice. Uh, how how's how's it been? How, how have you found it? The sort of at, at home schooling and stuff with uh, all the kids knocking about. Well, my ones are too young, so my first one's two years old. So oh, okay. homeschooling for her is like, what's your ABC? Like, yeah, <laughs> that's not very challenging. Yeah. So or like you know, don't don't eat off the floor, things yeah. like that. So <laughs> homeschooling is quite basic, and this one now is six weeks old. So uh, you know, there's literally nothing I have to teach this 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 baby. Like just. You know, he cries when he's hungry. He gets fed. He wets his. He wets himself. I change his nappy. Yeah. So I, I, I'm in the sweet spot. I think if you've got kids in school, that's when it becomes stressful. I mean, yeah. I'm in the early years sweet spot, and they even though we're in lockdown three, they've kept um, early years childcare open for some reason. Oh, perfect. Oh, there you well, go then. Yeah. It will be perfect until until we all, we all got COVID. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it, won't be, it won't be so perfect. Yeah. But I I find that quite incredible that. I can still take my daughter to somebody's house and she can mix with five other kids and an assistant. And I, I see other parents in the corridor and we're all pressing the buzzer to go in and, you know, this is it? Feel yeah, like it's some pandemic behavior. Exactly. I, I mean, reading the big sort of a New Yorker um, uh, article about the, the last year, and they were saying there's a historian talking about 1918 and they're saying all the mistakes like it when it comes to uh, vaccine research of obviously we've had uh, exponential um the development and uh, technological advancements and stuff but when it comes to the 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 basic stuff of keeping the virus at bay preceding the vaccine it, it hasn't really advanced that much since then. So we're implementing all the same strategies as we implemented back in 1918. And we're also making all the same mistakes. Like everything we're doing wrong now is what people were doing wrong then. And they said it's like a matter of like when it comes to uh, different procedures, it's a matter of layering. So you like put it, put all these different things in place, like whether it's the masks, whether it's uh, shutting this out of the other down. And it's like Swiss cheese. Each of the layers on their own is really porous and and uh, will, will create mistakes. But layering them all together, it's pretty solid. You know, it provides a, it provides a pretty solid uh, like bulwark against the uh, against the virus. But they're like removing layers left, right, and centre, and that childcare thing is 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 an instance of that. It's like that particular layer, there's a big gaping hole in it, and that's what, which will um, uh, prevent us from mitigating the spread. Which is just yeah, same mistakes. People learn nothing from like 1918. But and my my theory is that this government has to provide financial assistance to loads of sectors, right? Yeah, and it's just saying it's saying to itself, okay, well, how can we? How can we just avoid this? And so it doesn't want to bail out nurseries yeah. or childminders. Parents will have to pay childminders if they keep their kids at home. Yeah. Um, so it basically puts the burden of responsibility on the parents. So I know someone mm. who's got like a vulnerable child and she's really stuck because she's thinking, I don't, you know, my child can't afford to get COVID. But at mm. the same time, if I keep my child from childcare, that's costing me £1,500 a month. How have you, I know that you work in care. Yeah, yeah. Have so got, have you got? Have you have you been vaccinated? Uh, I haven't been vaccinated. I haven't been offered it yet. 
Um, I, uh, I, I was, I, I was, yeah, I, I won't sort of go into it because I've cleared it up with a person, but I was having a bit of a back and forth with someone about this. And I was saying like the, the, when it comes to this kind of thing and there's still a limited supply at the moment during the rollout, they have to adhere to something called bureaucratic triage, which is just like, you know, normal pre triage in an emergency situation where you prioritize the, the, the ones who are the, the, the worst off, you know, or on the cusp of death or whatever. I said, and I'm, looking after people where I have direct contact, like me, if I go in asymptomatic and pass it on to one of the people I'm caring for, there's a really, really high chance that they'll die because they come into that uh, that bracket. Um, and I was saying that's why they, I'm not saying teachers shouldn't be vaccinated. I think teachers definitely, they're doing an incredible job. They need to be factored in to this decision. But I said that there is a, uh, you know, there is a reason that carers, of people who are elderly or working with vulnerable people have been prioritised, and that's and that is why. But um, I it's just like deg degrees of separation, isn't it, between being infected and who might potentially die? And uh, I haven't yet. No, I haven't been. I haven't been offered it yet. But I, I'm I, I'm in a sort of ethical quandary because I have I only have to do about. I've gone back to care work, and I only have to do about twenty hours of care a week now. It's only like. Uh, four five hour shifts and I, I, I don't know I'm just thinking like is there someone am I potentially depriving someone of the vaccine who might need it even more like I don't know I'm but then also I'm not taking it to protect myself I'm taking it to protect the people I'm caring for so I've I've sort of uh yeah I've struggled a little bit that decision but well my name is Athena the goddess of wisdom yeah. so this is this is how I adjudicate on on the matter yeah. um, <laughs> this is this is my judgment yeah. you work you work in care you are like you said you're coming into contact with vulnerable people so you, you should have the vaccine I oh great that, okay I think that we I think that the the approach that a lot of people are taking, and this is the approach you're taking, is that this vaccine is really important. Um, you know, we have to make sure it goes to the right people. But the government should have bought enough of the vaccine to vaccinate everyone who needs it. Yeah, it shouldn't exactly. be us thinking, oh, I don't want, don't, don't waste it on me. It shouldn't be a precious resource. Yeah, it should be something that we have in abundance. That's the whole point. That is the, that is a strategy that mm. the government has chosen to beat COVID. It is said we are not good enough to control society and to implement. Um, laws or arrangements to control the virus. We're useless. They haven't been able to do it. They've had a year and they've, it's got, gotten way out of control. So all they can do now is vaccinate us. So that means yeah. they need to have an abundance of the vaccine so we can all get it and not hesitate. That hesitancy is what is going to make their strategy not work. Obviously, yeah. their incompetence too will probably make it not work. But make anybody who feels hesitant, hesitant, either because they think they want it to go somewhere worthy or through um, vaccine fear or vaccine um, cynicism. Um, that is what's going to kill. What I found really interesting is that there's not much information out there to stop vaccine cynicism. Yes, yeah. Yeah, that's so right. Because, I mean, a lot of the people, it, it, people I, like my, my loved ones who, if any of them, I'd say... Lot, I'll, I'll lightly describe them as vaccine sceptics, but not because they don't trust the, the science behind it or they, they don't trust the vaccine in itself. It's that they don't trust the government's incompetence. And like you said, them, the government not releasing like a, you know, a, a, an advert with a breakdown of, you know, what, what's contained in the vaccine or how they came, uh, to, uh, to, to create the vaccine and what were the factors that helped to expedite the process. The fact that government's not released any of that. In a, in a kind of clear, far uh, wide-reaching way, it is is part of yeah, it's part of the problem. Uh, it's like people just do not trust this government. And when you have stuff like like clientelism and uh, cronyism, where they're giving manufacturing contacts, like Matt Hancock gave a, a test tube manufacturing contract to the bloke who owns the pub down right. his road, that like the madness of that. That when that stuff's happening, then you're like, oh, okay, I don't know if I. I don't know if I, I don't know if I trust, uh, yeah, the, I don't know if I trust it for that reason, but then you just get mad kind of vaccine sceptics if it, it gives you, it shrivels you, your penis up and gives you, <laughs> gives you if every type of autism or whatever. You, you, um, yeah, I mean, you get them people who, who sadly, I was going to say are marginal figures, but I think the overturn window has shifted and actually they're, 
not marginal figures. There seems they're to be not. quite a substantial uh, voice now. Yeah. No, they're not. I mean, my mum called me because she got a text from a GP to say, "Oh, you know, you're going to get a, you're going to get a vaccine appointment soon." And she was like, "Oh, should I take it? You know, so and so saying this. There's this in the newspaper. Even like people that I know who I would say are, are fairly intelligent people who are my mm. friends, whatever. Even they're worried about it. And then there's the there's the backdrop of kind of being, you know, especially like some black people I know are like, well. You know, uh, has has it been tested uh, widely enough? Is it a con? Uh, we know a lot of medicines um, and vaccines were tested on black people historically. Like yeah. we haven't been historically treated well um, by by science. Yeah. Um, and all of a sudden, and I think people this year, or I should say last year, because it's a new year, I think last year people started to become aware of these kind of things. So this is mm-hmm. almost the worst time to inflict a kind of a mass a mass kind of immunization drive yes. of the people who have suddenly started to realize all the awful things that were done in the not too distant history yeah. in our not too distant history so that's made them more cynical and then all you've got to do is mention bill gates and <laughs> you know like i wish they just kept it quiet that that he had something to do with you know the the research process or whatever it's all yeah. a bit of a it's all a bit of a mess and I think the vaccine strategy this government is is trying to roll out is 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 not going to work for for and that's going to be a big part of it people just won't take it yeah I hundred percent agree and so like yeah like you said it's the uh, the the fact that uh, people are are kind of wising up to the uh, you know the the, the critical race uh, aspects and the the, uh, the the systemic racism that's going on. And I wanted to get on to that. So I read. Have you read the book uh, Whites on Race and Other Falsehoods yet? No, I, no. I, I like the way you say yet as well. Like, yeah, uh, yeah, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> this will be on Athena's reading list. Uh, no. I'm, I'm not- <laughs> That's a, I'm not, I'm not ready. No. All right. I, I say, by the way, I say yet um, with with every book because I don't want people to think that I'm I'm like I, I assume they I, I get them think that people think I assume they don't they don't read or something or that I sound elitist or something. I just get a really I'm very class conscious as well because I'm working class, so I get a bit chippy about little things like that if it's said to me. So I think like. Oh, I, I can read. Like I, I can read that book. You don't. You don't have to tell me about that book. I can bloody read, mate. Um, so like you, you just just in charge. You like you are the yeah. most vociferous reader I think I've come across. Oh, honestly, honestly, like it's, um, and that's one of the reasons why I, I started to kind of interact with you more because I was like, rah, he's reading books that I was forced to read like, yeah. as part of my degree. Like I was forced to read some of the stuff you read in your leisure. Uh, and that, that piques my interest a little bit. But sorry, I interrupted you. Carry on. Tell no, me why I need to read this book. No, that's all right. No, it was just one, it was just a kind of good uh, uh, thing that, like a bit of a punctum that kind of hit me in my stomach when I read it. Um, because I sort of said, I think, me, like, uh, me as a white person, we all kind of, I feel a lot of white people kind of, including myself included massively, embarrassed ourselves uh, in the outpouring uh, that happened mm-hmm. um, uh, post George Floyd, right? And it just, I, I look back at some of the stuff I was putting on Twitter and I really didn't mean it to come across that way but just kind of it's smacked of tokenism it, it makes me cringe like even thinking about it now and uh and i um and in this book she writes uh the obvious logic uh, would have me gratified by these responses satisfied that at last the critical mass of white people were up in arms about racism and acknowledging their own complicity she said and yet i can only describe my reaction as that of a barely suppressed eye roll and admit that i felt deeply unmoved by much of it watching so many pe- uh, many white people grapple with the reality of racism for the very first time i could think only of the fact that white people were grappling with the reality of racism for the very first time and she's like that's that's why i find it so deeply fucking frustrating and it's like it's, it's true it's true it's like we we it's the it's the a lot of the stuff that even though I've read and that, like I, I've realised, oh no, I haven't, I haven't, I've read it, but I've not really grasped it. I've not really grasped, um, like, you know, the, the, the teachings in critical race theory and stuff like that. And it was, uh, yeah, it was just kind of, it was like, it, it, I, 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 rightfully, I felt like a fucking dick, uh, for, <laughs> for, for, you know, for having that absolutely glaring blind spot for, 
you know, for, for, for so for so long. Well, I theorise that what people forget is they forget the most basic thing, like white people have a race. Yeah. Um, it often is, the way we talk about it, just the language you use and the semiotics of, of race implies that race is something that belongs to everyone else, not white people. And so when we learn about things that happen because race exists and we exist under different structures of power based on the race we are assigned or mm-hmm. the race that we have. Um, because if, if you read that and you think you don't have a race, it's like something that happens. It's like you're in a zoo and you're watching it happen and you're a spectator yeah. and you don't realize you're a participant. You know, you are in the zoo. You're in this, we're in this together. Like mm. we're all in it. Um, and I think that's, that's the penny that dropped, I think on, uh, on the kind of the, that Black Lives Matter season or, or whatever we want to, we want to, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, like, oh, like that, this is us too. Like, I always, I've been saying for ages and I'll keep saying it, like, when we talk about, for example, like black history, like, that's not, that doesn't belong to us. Like, if, if, if a white person came on a boat and put a black person on that, on that same boat and took them off to America, that's as much white history as it is black history. Yeah. It doesn't stop being white history because a black person is involved. Don't get me wrong, there is black history that doesn't involve white people, which mm. is uh, what we don't, which that's the history we don't learn enough about. But mm. to just call it black history because it's got a black person in it. This is if we if we learn about these things, it is as much British history as it is African history. It just doesn't have the whitewashing. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I think we're we're starting to starting to reframe things slowly in that way, uh, which is helping people a little bit. Do you think things have gotten better since do you think things improved? I, uh, I I I don't because this is what I I'm like I am I don't know because I, I I sometimes think okay maybe like it's great like you said it's it's uh, it's it's great to uh, have it's it's great to have certain uh, signifiers of um, uh, consciousness raising and stuff like that but then like I, I do you think like the vehicle for sort of a better social position um for, for black people is more like in the courts in the judiciary in the judiciary uh with policy and i know you start that process uh of uh improving the lives of black people um in the courts etc by you know uh, doing this stuff on twitter and people talking about it and reading the right things and talking to people and stuff like that but I, I, it opened a conversation, but it opened a conversation that I think ebbed away, not completely, but it, 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 it ebbed away. To, it, yeah, it basically it, it ebbed away. It stopped being as much of a focal point. People, I was gonna say, I was gonna say, the white tears evaporated quite yeah. quickly. <laughs> you know, they they evaporated. What I do, what I think, uh, and this is a sort of positive thing. I think it didn't change. Um, the condition of kind of black people in the areas of life in which we are kind of we experience disadvantage. So like like you mentioned the courts, happens in healthcare, happens in education, happens in dating, you know, it happens in all kinds of scenes. I don't think it changed those things, but what it probably did was make people see what we see. Yes. Um, yeah. a bit more clearly or without kind of skepticism or disagreement. Um so if you'd said to people before, oh, you know, you're black people are disadvantaged in the healthcare system. They might have said, well, how is that the case? We don't believe you, blah, blah, blah. And maybe after last summer, people were presented with information or able to find information for themselves that, that could prove that was the case mm. or they could they could finally understand what we mean when we say things like decolonized history because yeah. they might have heard us want to do that but they may not have understood what that meant or understood how dangerous it is to kind of have a history that's distorted or they might not even realize the history they're, they're taught is distorted. Mm. They might be like, what's the problem? This is all correct. So I think people have been able to see the issues, but going on education, for example, like if anything, it got worse <laughs> because the conservatives came out and said, we are definitely not going to change anything. Um, yeah. They, they came out and were very clear that they weren't going to put more non-white authors on onto reading this even though language has been something that belonged to non-white people for thousands of years before it belongs to europe you know yeah. we've been right europeans have been writing for the least amount of time like globally historically that is the case you know you we we should be learning about indian playwrights not shakespeare yeah you know indian shakespeare's uh indians have their own shakespeare's sorry i can't talk 
No, 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 sorry. <laughs> I've got a baby hanging off me. So oh, anyway, awesome. what I'm trying to say is there, there, there were traditions in literature that go back millennia um, and our tradition goes back 500 years. And so yeah. why are we just learning? It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't even make practical sense. Uh, so anyway, so, so we can now maybe see that's the issue, but until the government does something about it, unless you, unless you make changes in your, in your personal life, yeah, I think that's change. I, I think that's what will happen. Like, and it's it's weird. It, it, like, it's weird you say uh, use the word practical there. So I was just going to make a point. Like, I think you're so so right. And I've said about the the curriculum changes uh, to to include you know stuff that's just outside outside white. Uh, colonial history and also showing about like the absolute fucking horrors of our colonial history because that was something that was excised from my curriculum at school no idea had no idea of like it was just it was kind of like we we rushed in good benign people had a civilizing effect on other people we brought all these good things and it's ma- like madness of that 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 i have to say now is a form of indoctrination what we were taught at school people talk about radicalization indoctrination and it's usually applied to uh you know like muslim clerics and stuff that what we were taught at school that's a form of indoctrina- indoctrination, right? Um, uh, to uh, em- embolden and strengthen the, the, the white mindset and the, the idea of white uh, supremacy in the world. There's conservatives and centrists who, who are really conservatives. And for them, it's easy to mask the deeply ideological drive of the Tories with something that's encoded in the D- DNA of their ideology, which is pragmatism and common sense. They always put everything they do down to pragmatism and common sense. So it makes them sound as if they're anti-ideological. But then we see apparently clear-eyed conservatives or like economic rationalists turn into like a COVID sceptic death cult while wearing like steroid enriched poppies on their chests and spewing up a load of stuff like Christian British mythology in order to get the Brexit vote through. And you think, no, they're as, they're as dangerously ideological as anyone said. There's a zealotry to what they espouse as well, but under the the guise of uh, common sense, you know? Um, oh, completely. It's, yeah. And there's been a weird kind of, um, I'm going to use a word that doesn't exist. There's been a weird spaghettifying of the political spectrum recently. And it was like, rather than there being a line and you're on one side of it and you're left and then you're on the other side, you're right. It's all kind of messed up. There's no consistency anymore yeah. in what people want. Like people want lockdowns, but this is a very right wing thing. They want, they want, the police to arrest people who who are breaking lockdown. They want to mm. snitch on people who are breaking lockdown, and and left wingers are doing that. They want that authoritarian yeah. control. Um, and then you have, the, but then you also have right wingers yeah, who are like skeptics. Um, and yeah, it's all very inconsistent. It's like almost like it doesn't mean anything to be on the left or right anymore. Now all that matters now is your opinions. Yeah, mate, a hundred percent. Like, I, and I've said, so I I have real problems with there's like a, a strain of puritanism and proselytizing on the the new left for want of a better word right and so i feel sometimes i feel really homeless politically homeless from the left as well because i see like you said like the people's wanted to snitch on other people and people wanted to set a moral threshold like that that is unattainable and policing other people's moral purity and stuff like that and i think there's 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 accountability there's consequences to what you have to say i don't you know i I believe people have a right to say whatever they want to say but then they've got to face the consequences if a consensus forms that what they've said is you know a, a dickhead thing to say um but so yeah i mean i i even though i'm you know, I'm I'm 31. I'm I'm kind of in the 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 millennial bracket for for what people assume is an archetype of what a left wing person is. But I don't feel totally left wing because I don't recognise a lot of the 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 drives and motivations on the left. Um, so, or I don't not that I don't recognise them. I just don't adhere to them. I don't believe in them. So yeah, it's kind of, it is exactly what you say. It's kind of a, a weird mishmash of political identity at the moment. Like no one, no one's consistent. And I flip flop. Yeah. I flip flop all the time. Like I flip flop. Like now I'm talking talking earlier about critical race theory. I'm, I'll probably be a racist tomorrow. Like I flip, <laughs> I flip flop all the time. I don't know where I stand. But I, I I I always if I have to I like identify myself in a way. I say you know I'm a Quaker 
anarchist. I believe in some anarchism. I'm sort of an economic socialist, I think. But then I'm a cultural libertarian. I I I I I probably more aligned with the right or whatever the right is now uh, when it comes to um, I don't know stuff about speech and that. But you know, it's it's a boring argument. I hear these conversations all the time. It's uh, yeah. So I think yeah. But what I'm saying is I don't know what I am. I'm some kind of Frankenstein at the moment when it comes to my political allegiance. I have no idea. But I think most people are, and that's mm. something we don't we don't acknowledge a lot because we like we like kind of binary kind of conversations. We like to be able to get get on a hill and die on it, yeah. and and not to like look at other hills that we like to die on. And what you said kind of sums it up. Like we are right wing, or we lean to the right on some issues and lean to the to the left on others. I'm probably the opposite to you in that I'm kind of like a socialist economically on some things, yeah. but not on other things. If that makes yeah. sense. I don't really have a problem, for example, with landlords. I have a real I get really frustrated when people fixate on the the existence of landlords being the issue. It's it's the it's the absence of rent control that's the issue. Mm. Like someone's got to own the property. Like I don't really care who owns it. All I want is that it is leased out at a, at a proper and reasonable price. Yeah. People who charge too much for their properties are scum. If they charge less for their property, then that would be fine, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. So that would be that's the issue. Um, so that's I'm not sure, and I would I would suggest that the conversation now on the socialist side of things is is to kind of you know do away with ownership of property and everything has to be publicly owned and whatever. So I don't agree with that. So I would say I'm probably not as economically socialist as, as the kind of the the consensus is a bit more extreme than it would have been maybe ten years ago. Yeah. So I don't really align myself with that. However, culturally, I'm probably more left wing. Like I don't think humans can handle free speech. When we have it, we're just awful with it. Yeah. <laughs> like we're just so. I think free speech in, as a concept is a beautiful thing. But people aren't beautiful. People are just awful. Yeah. And I like the idea of political correctness because when we didn't have it, it was we were, we were saying all kinds of horrible things on a daily basis um, without consequence. So, but the, I guess this is a long-winded way of saying like what you're saying is completely correct. We have different views depending on what we're talking about, and that doesn't make us uh, contradictory or hypocrites. That makes us. That's pretty much how things work. Like yeah. it's okay. I describe, I use the word progressive a lot. So I say rather than being left wing or right wing, I, I call myself progressive. So I think, what's the problem? What's the solution? That solution might come from left or right. Yes. Uh, that doesn't make it right or wrong. It just means that things have a political identity because politics is a science. Yeah, that's, yeah, no, that's perfect. That's exactly it. And yeah, we don't, it's like the Walt Whitman thing of like, we contain multitudes. So I always bang it out. It's just a really succinct way of just going like, we're all complicated guys. But we are like, we are. I find it very rare to meet someone who has a totally closed, coherent ideological system. Everyone is always like a mishmash. And that's why I, I, I mean, you do, yeah, you, I mean, we need convictions, like you said, we need convictions about some things. Like I, I think any time I see someone being robbed of their dignity, like I'm, I'm never going to tolerate that ever, like in a, in a, in a, um, in a situation. But then it's like, yeah, like you said about like free speech as well. Like I'm not, I don't think I'm a free speech absolutist because I think there is, we have to also balance like liberty or there's like a complex negotiation between liberty and then uh, social responsibility, you know, between uh, like having freedom uh, of speech, but then having decency towards other people. Which is why I find the circular argument about um, it's a a circular argument and I find it quite boring. So it's like Mm. um, someone says something and it's offensive. Then someone says, why did you say that it's offensive? And they say, I can say what I like. Um, stop trying to silence me and then someone says well, I can say I'm offended why are you trying to silence me and then they go well no I can say what I like why are you trying to silence me and it's like this circular conversation it's like that that thing someone being offended and then saying they're offended that is free speech in action yeah I think a lot of people want free speech to be a question of I want to say whatever I like with no right to reply yeah which is a it's just a free speech. That's just, you know, you might just sit in your house and just talk to yourself. That's yeah, that's cool. just, yeah, yeah, you're being a, a fucking lummox. Like, just bum, 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 shouting your mouth of exactly that. I said, like, free speech, but with consequences. You know, then you, you say what you like, but you will have to face repercussions if what you said is, uh, you, you know, d- deeply harmful to, to other people. The reason I was sort of talking about it is in the, the, the book I'm writing, I've got to a chapter around personhood. And it's got a lot of my dealings with those 
who either have neurodegenerative diseases and have dementia as a form of that, and a kind of guy that I was friends with in the care home who had Down syndrome, and it, it and it it kind of goes into like a lot of it will be like kind of like just anecdotes that are like silly or funny or whatever, and then there'll be some uh, ruminations on this idea of personhood, and that was one of the things that. I've started focusing on in, in in that complicated negotiation between social responsibility and freedom of speech and between liberty and decency. And uh, yeah, it was interesting because of, uh, like you said, the, the those circular feedback loop arguments around free speech are, are so, so tedious. Um, and it's, it's just weird that like, it's, it's, it's kind of weird that we, we've, we, we haven't seemed to have moved beyond that um people are stuck in a rut with the rhetoric around freedom of speech but actually i read a book called the the free speech wars which is it it comes from a lot of different perspectives i'd say most the essays in it lean more left than than right maybe but it's got um like essays like the protecting the freedom of speech um in a diverse society is freedom of speech realizable the problem and neutrality and intellectual and intellectual freedom uh the case of libraries you know kind of different uh angles on it and it's actually yeah it's, it's opened up my eyes to uh a way to articulate the free speech position that's quite new and refreshing and isn't and it as is more complicated and multifaceted and layered than just I want to say what I want you can't say what you want but me saying you can't say what you want is what I want to say etc 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 um so yeah yeah sorry sorry and that's an example no but that's an example of the progress you can make when you do the work I think a lot of us are so addicted to social media that that's where we get our views and that's where we refine or maybe change or challenge our views but that's not complex enough or considered enough and not many people are going to do what you do which is just read a book on free speech (laughs) and not just any book like that sounds like quite an academic book as well (laughs) so um all of the I've I've always said this like pretty much every answer to every problem you've got in the world exists in academia. You can do it. You can do, you can read all the academic books out there, you know, in cultural studies or sociology and psychology or whatever and history. And they're not all going to be consistent and they're not all going to say the same things, but actually a lot of the solutions we have are there, but who can be bothered? Like who wants to read, you know, who wants to do that? Do people just want to tweet or go on on Facebook? Um, It's because, and that's the problem. For me, it comes, I'm actually quite, um, hermetic poetic I'm, I'm a bit of an isolate like the sort of three core friends four best friends i've got i've had since i was born i've literally known them since i was born right and they're the, my three kind of uh best mates um and obviously there's loads of people in the comedy circuit and like most of my socializing now that i'm clean off you know i don't take drugs anymore or drink is is in like the daytime over a cup of coffee or whatever but a lot of the time if i'm not gigging or writing or doing a care shift like now I'm back to doing that. Uh, I'm just I'm just kind of reading. I'm just like I just read. I just always loved it. I'm, always, I'm not trying to sort of flex my intellectual muscle or anything. I'm just I'm just I just I just enjoy it. Get a lot of um, I get a lot of satisfaction and fulfilment from reading about anything and everything. Like I just find a lot of stuff interesting. But so I mean, some of it comes from like I said, being a working class person like being a working class boy and sort of speaking in a way that sometimes there's like the grammatical bastardization of like an Essex an Essex estuary dialect like Alfie Brown pointed out to me that instead of me going I studied English literature and creative writing I'll say I'd done a degree in English literature and creative writing so (laughs) I've still got you know I still got that uh part of my identity and I didn't do any A-levels um I really mucked up uh at that kind of score at GCSE level and that and being an autodidact maybe part of it is worrying about like people thinking I'm stupid um and so I've just always I mean the reading the love of reading comes from really really young really early but um I don't know I don't know yeah maybe maybe some of it is a, a slight working class chippiness when it comes to uh education and seeing people who have had an elite education rest on their laurels and never really move beyond a certain point because they just like, they assume that, um, 
they assume that they 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 they've they've got a, a, a kind of set store of knowledge and they never need to build on that. But I don't know. Yeah, that's the real problem. Like we don't really champion lifelong learning. Yeah, um, at all. We kind of say we look at people and they go and we say, oh, you've got a good degree. Oh, you're complete. Then you you clocked it. Yes, you clocked education, and it's lifelong. Of course, it's lifelong because we change socially our view on things all the time and what's acceptable. What was acceptable twenty years ago isn't acceptable now. So if society learns, that means humans within society have to learn has to learn as well. Yeah. Um, but you're totally right that people rest on the nose in their education. Um, you said so. You've been a lifelong reader, but you also said that you you, you kind of messed up your GCSEs and your A levels. Yeah. So um, was that? Do you think that was there any neglect on on behalf of the state uh, based on where you came from? Did you feel like you, you you couldn't enjoy school because teachers didn't expect much of you? Things like that. Yeah, a hundred percent. So I just went to like a normal senior school. Um, I, I never know. The di- like what's all just normal schools? What are they called? So I went never comprehensive. Go- so I went to a comprehensive, yeah, yeah. like a comprehensive school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just went to one of those, and um, uh, and the they had one teacher called Miss Abianka, who was my history teacher, who is incredible, and she was my tutor uh, in the first like two years of school and stuff. She was really brilliant and hands on, and saw uh, a lot of promise in me. The rest of them. I would never like go back to that school if like they invite me back to like you know do like oh like this like, this was one of our people who used to go to school like I I wouldn't do it because they I had no the teachers were crap like I, I had no I all I ever was was compared to my brother by PE teachers he's very sporty and it's like he was he older than he you? was older than me yeah and my dad and they knew um uh, like my my dad had played rugby and stuff so they were they were constantly just putting me down for like me and my mate Louis were completely written off when it came to sports education they get they put there was five groups and they set up a special group six just for me and louis two fat boys to be in and we would literally just go around like like frying bricks <laughs> frying bricks <laughs> bricks from trees at our pe teacher and like they just completely lost hope with us um we just we were just really naughty we just mucked about we got chucked out of our woodworking class for a year and a half and me and louis used to just do fencing with uh, blinds that we ripped down from the windows and that and uh it was just yeah teachers just kind of shrugged the shoulders and just uh my art teacher was good as well actually i did i did love art um it sounds to me like you need boundaries yeah i just i was just i, I went i was just an i was just naughty i was just i was just a white like all i was worried about was making louis laugh and louis making me laugh right. and we we weren't popular but we weren't unpopular we kind of everyone knew us and found us funny but we were just kind of our own little unit and other people occasionally came into our orbit and stuff um so yeah and then i so then i did a b-tech in art and design in college um my college teachers were incredible um they were they were they were just unbelievable i would always at taddeus blower uh the teacher called mark shed who used to come in with a duck in his uh in a pet pet duck in his basket um Uh, let's dwell on let's dwell on this a little bit a pet he used to come in he was he was a bit of a he like it was like a man, like a manufactured eccentric, but he was apparently like the step dad to Lily Allen for like a, a year or so or two years. And he was just a bit of an eccentric and he used to have these structures. He invited me around his house and he used to have these, this like fortress of like, like iron and uh, like rusting iron. Like he made these castles in his back garden. He was a bit like a weird bloke. And, um, <laughs> What did he teach? He taught art and design. So yeah, and right. uh, and photography. And Taddeus Blower, who was my other teacher, who was like just a really gentle, lovely man who who just saw because I didn't have any friends in college. Like I had literally no one. I didn't have anyone at all. I used to have a shaved head or the same grey tracksuit uh, every day, having been washed. Um, and I used to listen to like happy hardcore and stuff. But I'd come in and talk to my tutors about um like milton's purgatoria or about peter cook or you know stuff that they could r- relate to and that they so so i really bonded with them uh, the, do you think you're old beyond your years i mean yeah, i think i was then yeah because all the sort of the the the, the palace intrigue and like like little petty dramas that went on 
that just is the normal part of being a teenager. Like, I'm not being snobbish about it at all. It's normal part of being a teenager. It wasn't like I just found that a bit boring. Um, and, and I was I was sort of a drunk then as well. Like I'd I, I had insomnia and I'd stay up all night drinking and I just very 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 lonely. Um, and and so I just sought solace in I was chatting to my tutors or. Um, or reading and but then I would see Louis like my closest mates outside of outside of college but they didn't go to the same college as me so um yeah so just from then like I've always I think I've always been quite a solitary person in in some ways I can be a gregarious socializer in short bursts like but I but then I I recede back in into myself and I just don't even when I used to went through the years a bit like you know I've abused drugs for nearly a decade I'd go to the parties to squirrel away as as much drugs as I could, so then I could go back and do drugs on my own or just with one other mate. And that was <laughs> that was the only time I ever was part of a social scene. And even then, I wasn't I wasn't truly part of it. Um, yeah. How did you find it as a comedian? Where because I'm I'm probably not as extreme as you, but I like to be in my my, my house. Mm. I'm a, what they call a homebody, I guess. Yeah. And obviously, comedy involves you being outside of your house a lot and at night and often far away for long periods of time. Yeah. Did you was that something unattractive to you about it, or did you just get on with it? Uh, I got I, yeah. So I, I that it, yeah, there is something yeah. I do find something unattractive about it, but I love. I love being on stage. Like I love performing. I love being on stage. So it was kind of, I would endure the other stuff around it. So I could enjoy uh, that kind of moment, but I, I'm very in and out. Like I don't, I don't partake in the social side of comedy. Like I don't do like the after drinks or, um, you know, I'll be like, say, catch up with people make, before the gig and have a little chat, but like, I'm home, like, straight in the moment I'm off stage, I'm home, like, I'm gone. I'm not, uh, and even in Edinburgh, I would, uh, like, I, I think a couple of nights I went out to, like, one of the, the, those, I can't really, I always forget the name of them, one of those bars or whatever. But, um, yeah, a lot of the time I, I was, uh, I was just stayed back at, back at the house or, or, or I was just gigging all through the day until late at night. But yeah, the social scene doesn't appeal to me at all. Um, I'd rather just work hard, like and focus on like building up a uh, you know building up a, a, a following and you know getting myself out there and working on my material. And I'd, yeah, I'd rather just do that kind of be creative, but not be very social. <laughs> That's like me. I never. I used to disappear yeah. after gig. A lot, of the, a lot of the time it's because I was working. So I was, I was like, I can't, I can't hang out with you guys. I have to be off at like six the next day. Like, yeah. And, but also I just wanted to go, I wanted to go home as well. Um, can we talk about your book, please? Because you sneakily mentioned, oh yeah, I'm just writing a book. Like that's like normal. Oh, yeah. this, is, and <laughs> this, this isn't like a lockdown book that we're all writing. This is a proper book that someone is paying you to write that we can go to shops and buy. This isn't like yeah. a lockdown hobby. This is you writing a book, which is pretty cool let's talk about what's your book about can we talk about uh, it? yeah it- uh, yeah so I've, I've got to be quite um i've got to be quite clipped and economical about the details only because uh like i could get in trouble um yes stuff. Yeah. Don't, don't tell us anything you're not allowed yeah yeah because, no, yeah um no yeah so it's it's with uh so it's it's with uh penguin um penguin books and it's a it'll be a memoir about uh, elderly care about me in elderly care being a kind of primary focus, but then there'll be stuff about my like addiction to like prescription opioids and comedy, and there's like lots of like different digressions, and it's 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 around sort of care work and and about the interdependencies of 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 care work and care ethic and stuff like that, but as as a memoir and. um yeah, I, I, I like it. I'm loving, I'm loving writing it. I mean, it's it's kind of like I was amazed at um, how much they responded to it. You know, like a first time writer, she seen me do stand up comedy. And who's this? Uh, is this uh, your agent? Uh, no, so Sarah Kaiwinski, who is the uh, the one who's editing it. And she saw me do stand up and saw these articles about me talking about having worked in elderly care and that. And she just kind of messaged me and she commissioned me directly to to write a 30 page proposal, 
which I put off for a long, long time. Um, stupidly, I'd got given this amazing opportunity, um, and I, I put it off for a long time because I was just worried about my precarious mental health, and I was worried about if I didn't like if I put all the work into writing this proposal, and then it didn't happen. Like because I was worried I'd built my hopes up, and I did. I don't know if I was mentally uh, stable enough to to deal with that disappointment. But then in the end, I thought I would. What's what's worse, like getting rejected or just doing nothing and never knowing what what could happen with this book and just um, uh, being risk averse like that and just living in a kind of stasis. So I, I, I yeah, I wrote a proposal and they they were thrilled, like they they love it, like they really um, that that I, I'm there's I'm I'm very surprised at how invested they are uh, in it and. Um, yeah, it's been it's been kind of amazing writing it and excavating some of my own personal history and you know seeing recurrent themes within my life that have like oh like oh I understand why I was drawn to to care work or and drawn to drugs as well. So it's, yeah, uh, how long have you worked in? How long have you worked in care? So nine nine years. So I've yeah nine years. I've I've been in comedy for four years um, and I I went. I went sort of full time in comedy at the beginning of 2019, but then obviously that that was short lived. We then went into a pandemic, and, and that's that's quite quick as well. Yeah, like within within sort of three years to be to be a full time comedian. Yeah, I, ju- I I I was I was I was quite uh, I was quite good at sort of being able to navigate my way through the industry and like just 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 knowing how to you know build a build a profile and stuff. It's um, I, I mean uh, the the my outgoings as well are very small so i wasn't one of these comedians who was like earning loads of money or anything it was still quite a on the seat of my pants like hand to hand to mouth existence but i was earning enough to to, to cover myself like you know to live yeah. i was earning enough to live so that's, that's all you, that's all as long as that's all you needed and that's that's what it that's all it takes yeah. um uh, what I've interrupted you there, and I forgot what you were talking That's about. Right. No, sorry, I was... care work, care yeah. work. Yeah, yes, yeah. So, um, I, yeah, I could, I, I sort of was around care homes when my mum was. Uh, she worked as a nurse, uh, and then she did a sort of twelve-year stretch when we were little kids as a care worker. And if I was off school, like I was a bit of an apocalypticist when I was a kid. I was for some reason I was always worried about Saddam Hussein killing all the sea life. So every now and again, like. My mum would get a phone call like, "Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's about Saddam Hussein again. You you should come in and pick him up." And like, I'd pre- I'd pretended to lose my voice, but my mum was like, "When you usually when you lose your voice, you don't lose your whole voice." So I was just not talking. <laughs> pretty yeah. Yeah. yeah, I just I was just not talking like like Malvin. I've lost my voice. Oh no, pick me up! But really, I was scared of her uh, bombs, and um and. Uh, yeah, so when I would get, she'd pick me up from school, I would go, she'd take me on a work shift and that would be at the care home. And then when my nan got Pick's disease and had, uh, quite, quite a rare form of dementia, me and my mum would be her caretakers and go round there. We wanted to keep her at home for as long as possible. So she'd go, we'd go round there and, uh, like dispense some medication or cook a meals or whatever. And she would, and then I realised where I've got that apocalypticist mindset because something that factored into her hallucinations when she had dementia was the Taliban. She was a real news junkie. So for some reason, she kept seeing the Taliban in her living room. And I had to keep coming in and go like, be gone with you, Taliban. Like, off you go. Get away, <laughs> Taliban. Get out. And I go, Nan, it's all right. Like, Taliban, they got the Taliban are gone. I got rid of the Taliban. And then she would like one day answer the door and she'd drawn on purple eyebrows and told me that she aborted a, a baby with an eyebrow pencil. Like she went really mad. <laughs> like she just went, started making these little weird totems, like these weird totem poles out of bits that she found in her house and would glue them together. It was very strange. Um, so I've having uh, had exposure to a lot of mental health. And a lot of stuff like that. Um, I was uh, I, I had a lot of patience and tolerance when it came to uh, when it came to that stuff. So I think that's why I gravi- gravitated towards care work. I loved it, and I was really you know really bonded with the residents and the families. Always were like really relieved when I was on shift because I just yeah I had a really good bond with um, the people I was caring for, and you know still do. I find it 
I find it really, I find it really rewarding. I just really like it. I really like hair work. It is. And my godfather, um, I mean, he sadly passed away with COVID. When, oh shit! Sorry, mate. Yeah, no, it was, re- it was really sad as well because I mean, I I don't think we got angry enough with what the government did to care homes yeah. during the first wave, literally sending people back into these places, knowing they were sick yeah. um, just to, you know, save space in, in the NHS, which we pay for. And, you know, we should be accessing services. That's, I'm, I'm dancing around here. I really don't like the, the idea that people should be, shouldn't use the NHS. We pay for it. Yeah. You should use it. Don't use it irresponsibly. Yeah. But you still have to use it. If you're sick and it's life-threatening, call 999. If it feels like a heart attack, call 999. Don't say, oh, no, what about what about the NHS? Like The whole point of it is that it's a service that we use. Yes. Just because it's free at the point of use doesn't mean we should ration it. Um, and, I mean, a big a big thing that we don't add to the statistics when people died of COVID is people who died because they just would not access NHS services, which they could have done. Um, because it was not overwhelmed in the first wave. Yeah. It did function. Um, anyway, but I, I moved along there. But going back to care homes, um, it can be horrible when you put your loved one in a care home because you might have never envisioned it. Um, and I don't think my godfather's family envisioned it because he's got such a large family, but he had a quite an advanced stage of dementia by that point. Um, and it is wonderful when you have care home staff who you, who you feel, oh, that like almost like they're like family too. Yeah. Um, because of the way they, they care for things. But something that I find, I've had other experience of, of older people in my life having dementia. And I've always thought, even though what they're doing doesn't make any sense, there is something in their brain that is piecing together things. Yeah. It's almost like, it's like their brain is playing the right notes in the wrong order. Yes, that that's sense? such a perfect way of exactly that. That's such a brilliant way of uh, uh, of of, of pu- uh, putting it as well. Like I always say that that it obviously there's lots of different types of dementia and they affect different. I mean, dementia is actually the symptom. There's lots of different types of neurodegenerative diseases and they affect different parts of the brain. Uh, so people exhibit different behaviours, but there's usually an internal logic to what they're trying to convey to you but it's done in like it's like flag signaling or something it's done, or it's done yeah. it's done in a kind of abstract unusual way but that's where why it's so important to put, do person-centered care and get to know the individuals you're you're, you're dealing with i mean like the, this guy i'm caring for at the moment he's 30 but where he had severe meningitis um he's uh had a sort of arrested development like his capacity is really limited in a lot of ways so he 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 functions uh like somebody who's maybe about four or somebody who's a lot younger so he can't really speak much or he can only say the, the, the sort of the same few things but i totally get now what he what he's asking for what he needs like what's worrying him what's doing it and it's like a it's like developing a relationship that almost transcends language in a way it's 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 a hundred percent that like you you it you, what happens is people uh, residents who had dementia dementia get really frustrated and disorientated or demoralized because people don't stay consistent with their version of reality so rather than just going with what they're saying or what they're trying to convey to you people go like oh don't be stupid oh no that's rubbish your, your husband's dead like stop saying that stop doing that stop doing this and it's like actually there's they 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 are they're trying to they they are trying to they are trying to show you what they what they require or it's it, it just fascinating to me and and I've got a very I've got a very kind of um, like I've got very strong views of the social care sector and how people who are in care homes and stuff should be treated and what are the best methods of doing this. And yeah, like you said, like the anger, the absolute anger I feel of the neglect of the social care sector, which has been going on way long time ago. Like a lot of this, the stuff that's coming out now about the failings in in the care in the care sector, we you know we've been banging our head against the wall about this for for you know nine years since I've been in care, um, and it's uh, yeah it's yeah it's 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 I I, I really. I really hope it, it this might lead to some change, but I don't know. But it's um, I don't know if it will. Yeah. I don't know if it will. I remember. I mean, I'm I'm 39 now, but I remember 
uh, when I was at university, so 2001, 2003. So this is like a long time mm. ago. People were having conversations about in the future having to have a kind of conscription service for care workers. Yeah. Because there'd be so many older people in society. Uh, we wouldn't have enough carers even to to look after them if, if we stay with the care home system. Um, and if we don't suddenly start, you know, looking after our parents in our own homes or whatever, we, which is unlikely because we don't have our own homes yeah. to look after our parents. Yeah. Uh, unless, unless they want to give their homes to us. So um, it, it's hard to see how it's going to get better when the services required are going to be that much more demanded mm. um, as as the years as the years go on. And it's the, um, it's, it's the and that's so weird because I that I talked to a, a panel of academics recently who wrote a good book called The Care Collective and it's like um they they're called the Care Collective. It's called the Care Manifesto and it's a manifesto of how we should uh, create a society with a care forward approach with regards to like mutual aid, municipalism, and all that stuff, which I totally believe in. I believe in community and the communitarian. Uh, kind of spirit and 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 helping people on like a more local kind of grassroots level and um I, I think that stuff's really really important and i had mentioned care work conscription i thought i'd come up with i thought i'd invented that idea but i didn't know that that's already in the ether like people already having that conversation um and yeah it, 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 they they don't want to invest in care work or professionalise care work because care was handed over to private equity under Thatcher and all they're worried about is profit profit extraction. And these people, these elderly people in the care home are really profitable commodities and that's the only way they're viewed. That's the only way they're looked at. And so the, the amount of corners people have to cut because these effing companies who are pleading poverty, the company I work for, telling us to turn off electricity, telling us to turn off uh, um, the heating. And that year, he, the the CEO awarded himself a point two point two million pound bonus. And all year, it's outrageous. It is outrageous. it is it is criminal. And like I I am when the book comes out and I have a bit more of a platform, I'm I'm coming after those guys a hundred percent. Like I I I I've seen it, I've witnessed it firsthand, and it it makes me sick. And then with the, what the government's doing now, it's just they have no regard for the care sector. They have no regard. They don't. It, they they just don't care. And you don't have to be a particularly astute political commentator to see that. Exactly. Like it's quite, I mean, it's quite clear. I've, I read an article this morning uh, today in The Guardian, which is a newspaper that gets on my nerves no end. I don't know why I keep reading it. <laughs> it's like... um, and it's really, there's always spelling errors in it. It's really yeah. annoying. But anyway, there was an article and it basically said there's one care home, um, uh, I forget the area, and over Christmas they lost half their residents. They had about 27 residents and 14 passed away due to COVID. Yeah. Or COVID-19. I mean, it's staggering. Um, it's it's just staggering. Um, I want to end this podcast not because it's I'm not enjoying talking to you, but because I don't want you to talk yourself out of a job. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> until your book comes out, yeah. like you know, just just keep going, keep going until the book I comes out. I would hate I would hate for the care world to lose you. So I hope that you get to keep a hand in it in some capacity yeah that, yeah if i would the, the people i was kind of going at then like i don't work for them anymore so uh oh, luckily okay. the one the ones i work for now are actually uh they're a lot they're a lot better they're very uh they, they've been they've got great collection of carers and seems to be run really well so um yeah that gives you some hope all right that's 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 a relief but we're gonna to have to continue this conversation on twitter which i i look forward to yeah. um i could probably talk to you for like three more hours uh i feel like we just scratched the surface of like topics oh, it's been great it's been, it's been yeah, great I'm, talking I'm just i'm just sorry you couldn't come around to, to my house and get a plate of fried plantain yeah, but um know. just in case you don't know people who do the podcast come to my house and we drink coffee and eat plantain so you get a plantain voucher oh mate so thank you that's you perfect voucher. you haven't had it today but at some point in the future when when covid is is in is in our in our recent or far away history yeah. and we can see each other again perfect. you can redeem it at any time just knock on the door and i'll have to get out of bed and make you some <laughs> so yeah. that's that is a rod i've made for my own back thank you I'm... thank you very much it's been such a pleasure talking to you mate thank you hope lonigan thank you for keeping my company thank you bye So 
So that was Pope Lonergan. Pope, thank you so much for coming on. I'll tell you something. I couldn't edit down this podcast. I couldn't edit it. Um, I was listening and I thought, oh, I want to keep the conversation about Corona. I want to keep the conversation about free speech. I want to keep the, the lovely information he shared about his childhood at school. I want to keep it all in. He's such an interesting guy. Um, I genuinely haven't met him. I just saw the kind of person he was on social media, the kind of books he was consuming, the opinions that he has, how open and friendly he is. And I thought, let me get this guy on a podcast, man, because I'm sure if I'd crossed paths with him in the comedy world, we'd definitely be hanging out more. So Pope, uh, big up. Thank you. Um, and thank you, listener, for listening, because this was a long podcast and you got to the end. You know, we've got Instagram and Twitter and TikTok and this, that, and all other things, you know, demanding your attention. But you sat down for 60 minutes and you listened to this. So that's appreciated. Uh, I have one more favor to ask of you. If you like it, there's probably some function on your podcast platform that enables you to like literally like like some heart you can press or you can leave a review or you can tell a friend about it you can share but if you want to just spread the love and tell people about this podcast that would be great and appreciated but yeah you know you listen to it and that's all i can ask really that's appreciated too yeah brilliant thanks guys i've been athena for venue and we will catch up next time 